Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Carlos Ruiz Martinez, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Peter Czeska, author of Follow Your Conscience, The Catholic Church in the Spirit of the Sixties, published by University of Chicago Press in May of 2021. Peter Czeska is currently an assistant teaching professor in the Department of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I um, I teach in the Department of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, I'm an assistant teaching professor here, and I kind of see myself working at the intersection now of the history of ideas and also the vibrant field of Catholic studies. Um, sort of interdisciplinary side of Catholic studies, bringing together theologians, religious studies scholars, historians. Uh, but I'm also very interested in how ideas structure and animate behavior um, in, in American history and modern American history. So I see myself kind of working the intersection of those two fields. And I'm really into this idea of like imaginaries too, and Catholic imagination, and how it connects to lived religion. Um, I did my PhD at Boston College. Uh, I lived in Ireland for a couple of years. Um, my wife is Irish. And then we moved here in 2017. Uh, to, and I started out at the Kushwa Center for the Study of American Catholicism, um, working with Kathy Sprose Cummings, and eventually got absorbed into the Department of American Studies here, um, where I teach alongside Tom Tweed and Kathy Cummings and um, interact pretty frequently like, with folks like John McGreevy and Darren Dotruck, who are also in religious studies. So it's a very good place to be. And yeah, that's kind of my background. Um, this be, this obviously, and I'll, we'll talk more about the genesis of the project, right? But it, it began at Boston College, and then I kind of moved back to the Midwest, and I'm originally from Ohio. Thank you. And, and yeah, let's dive into that. Uh, can you tell us about how you came to this uh, particular project and how it developed? Um, and then a more specific question, how did you become interested uh, in how Catholic ideas about conscience function in, in public life? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, the answer is kind of banal in a way. Um, like it came out of reading for comps <laughs> in some respects. Like I just noticed all over the place that Catholics were talking about conscience and you can find snippets of it in all sorts of books, right? And, you know, Leslie Tentler's amazing study on contraception. Um, she mentions how this is a frequent occurrence in letters. Uh, and she kind of, she looks into it briefly. John McGreevy mentions how it's popping up in the draft in his book on Catholicism and American Freedom. Uh, but it cuts across like 20th century moral theology too. I was reading some stuff there. It's just a frequent topic. And I, 
so I became really interested that Catholics are saying things like, um, I have to form and follow my conscience. I have, uh, I have a, a right to always follow my conscience, no matter what it thinks. And I cannot break that sacred right for anyone, whether in the church or the state. So it was geared against authority in general, not just against the secular, but also against religious. And I just found them saying this all the time. So I really just, I became enchanted. I don't know what the word would be, but I became very taken by this question of like, why are they talking about this all the time? And so as soon as I started reading into it more, looking back to, even to the early 20th century to like catechisms and to manual treatise on manual theology and the, the, the stray commonweal article on what this idea meant in the 30s, I became really fascinated how there's a, there's a big, you have a question about this coming down the line, um, how, this, how this idea is around before the 60s, but then it really expands in the 60s. And I became really interested, how, how is it bouncing back and forth between sex and war? Right? Why is it in both of these realms at the same time in the late 60s? Uh, what could we learn if we, we tried to ask why this idea? And, and that's what I was really interested in, like, why this idea to, to the second part of your question, right? Um, I'm, I'm really interested in, like, why certain ideas become really important in certain moments. And this conscience's moment was really the 60s, although before there was a lot, and then there's a lot of residue afterwards. But it's really this moment around the 60s that this peaks. It's just discussed in so many articles. And then to the last part I'll say is like, when I got into the archives, I was just, I became, I was totally hooked before, but when I got in the archives and saw letters from lay Catholic women to their priests about following their conscience on the matter of contraception, or I found like draft paperwork that a 20 year old from Fordham files with the New York city draft board talking about, you know, how he cannot break his conscience for any authority. And Thomas Aquinas says that, and his, and his priest at, at, at his Jesuit theology professor told him he had to do this, Right. I just became hooked on trying to understand what they were, what this idea meant to them, what they were doing with it, and why they became so intensely interested in it. So it was a, it began as a why question. That's fascinating. Thank you. And as you mentioned, um, you know the the moment of uh, the discourse among Catholics of, of of conscience and conscience rights was the '60s, and, and that's in the subtitle of your book, "The Catholic Church and the Spirit of the '60s." Um, however, in your book, you show that. Uh, you know, these ideas among Catholics about conscience rights developed much before that. It can actually be traced to the medieval theology uh, of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, can you yeah. set the context in which Aquinas was writing yeah. and summarize his argument about, about conscience uh, a little bit for us? Yeah. This, this is one of the surprising things that the research led me to, um, to walk back, walk this back to the 13th century. And this is kind of an argument I make about all of American history in the book. Um, you know, we think of conscience rights as something that Anne Hutchinson pursues, uh, something that Roger Williams pursues, right? John Adams talks about conscience being in thraldom to priests, like that's one of his anti-Catholic critiques. John Locke has this amazing metaphor about the Pope having a, like a girdle with a bunch of keys on it. The keys are the conscience, so the Pope's like a big janitor with all these consciences clanging around. And so we think of Protestants as these as the genesis of conscience rights. And of course, there's a, a really compelling story about that. And that goes all the way up to, to like John Dewey and, and John Rawls. And it's this whole liberal Protestant secular tradition that's really important. Um, but Catholics were, were drawing self-consciously on the ideas of Thomas Aquinas from like the 1250s. Aquinas is like the original architect of this intellectual idea, although his obviously his corpus of works is complicated. And there are tons of specialists in Aquinas who spend their lives working on this. Um, so I'm just kind of I guess I'm kind of an interloper. I'm kind of going in and raiding it for what I want and then coming back out. But that, that's what they were doing, right? I'm trying to, that's what the Catholics of the 20th century were doing. 
So he has a bunch of different arguments, but they can really be boiled down to the idea that you have to follow your conscience, whether it's telling you something true or something false. Like your ultimate moral responsibility is to follow your conscience. And Aquinas was careful in his work to say you should form your conscience with the church's teaching, right? You should fo- you should form it with the church's teaching. But he said, even if it's erroneous and wrong, you still have to follow it, right? Even if it tells you to leave church, you have to follow your conscience because ultimately it's a sin not to follow your conscience, even if it's right or wrong. Um, and he speculates about, you know, eternal damnation about not following a conscience. Um, there are other things he said, you know, about following a false conscience, but really, and, and to put it kind of one way, he sets up this system between law and conscience, right? Objective and subjective. And for him, these two things have to coalesce. The, the conscience has to be formed by an objective law. And the authority who's making the law has to hand that law on reason, in a reasonable and just fashion, right, to, to form the conscience of the subject. So the authority has a responsibility to the individual as well. The law has a responsibility. And so what I see is like him setting up the system of these two categories that have to be balanced, calibrated, and worked out. But he also has these really uh, hot takes, you could say, or spicy takes on this, right, um, that are like in little lines in, in his lectures and in, and in the Summa Theologica that Catholics of the 20th century draw on and quote, right? So they're not doing all this like theological excursus to like find out exactly how to contextualize this, but they can find snippets and what they want to take out of his of his writings to apply to their contemporary situation, right? Which is something like a Dominican wrote like 1953 that, you know, he could disobey his superior in the order because Thomas Aquinas says you cannot hand your conscience over to any superior in your life at all. So that, that superior cannot come into your internal life and take over your subjectivity. Aquinas was very... Um, Aquinas was the guy who laid the intellectual um, edifice for this, right? He built this up. And then in the 20th century, it's recovered, but also interpreted to be useful for for modern Catholics. So the medieval base is there, but the modern Catholics of the 20th century are applying it to a situation in which, first of all, the secular state seems to be commanding more and more authority over, over church life, but also secondarily in the late 1960s, when the church tries to take command of the, of the contraception issue, right? So it's this, Aquinas is, is actually useful against any type of authority, even internal church authority. So I call this a medieval and modern movement, right? And what I do is try to change the terms of American history with that argument to say that um, conscience claims didn't begin in 1630 Boston, and they didn't begin um, in the colonial period in Rhode Island. Actually, they have the genesis in the 13th century. And in fact, like what we consider modern autonomy and modern individuality have these medieval and Catholic roots, which is, I think, like a challenge to, to the very framework of American history as Protestant and secular. And that's I just had fun with that. I, I just have fun playing with that. And in the first chapter, I really explore the genesis of the, uh, of the sort of unfurling of these ideas. And that's where I quote Locke and, and John Adams um, and a bunch of other thinkers, even like a, a science textbook from the 1950s, right, which is saying like, Catholics can't do science because they don't have individual consciences, right? That was And it was believed in the 17th century, and it kind of it, it dipped and it, it swiveled a bit, but in the 20th century, it's still there. The Catholics don't have this autonomy, but actually, they have a very intense, very focused idea of subjectivity and personal responsibility, and individuality that has to be considered in tandem with the law. But it can also be so radically individualist that it authorizes the individual to fight authority. Great, thank you. And and so obviously, Aquinas is a is a big figure in Catholic history and in Catholic thought, and yeah. his. Uh, ideas and, and arguments about conscience rights didn't didn't go away, but perhaps they remained a little bit in the background for a while and didn't receive a lot of attention from, from Catholic and, and non-Catholic intellectuals until uh, the 20th century. And you, you actually write that, quote, 
The logics of Catholic conscience rights became a nascent political program in the mid-1940s. Um, how does Aquinas' yeah. medieval theology that you just explained a little bit about uh, get picked up again by Catholic intellectuals and clerical figures yep. and, and even the laity in a 20th century U.S. political context? Yeah, this is the story of chapter two. Um, it was one of the hardest chapters of the book to write in some ways. Chapters one and two were the hardest. I tried it when I first wrote the dissertation, I wrote them together. And my advisor thought the chapter was just a mess. And so I threw it out. I remember throwing that chapter out and walking out of his office. And it was like right before the summer. And then I, I rewrote the chapter and realized it was two chapters. And the first one kind of lays out the ideas. But the second one is about this 30s and 40s moment. And this is a key moment, right? Like you say, it's just, it's kind of a breakthrough. It's like a, the initial sort of breakthrough of conscience logic. And it's the, it's the origins of it as a political program. And it takes off, as we'll talk about later in the Vietnam War and with the context of abortion. But before that, in the 40s, it was like the issue of saturation bombing, the idea that you could take a male soldier and make him drop bombs on enemy civilians. And it was also the idea of a male quartermaster distributing condoms to troops, right? So these people become... Um, these individuals become cogs in a larger machine. And so, but they can't obey those unjust laws. They have to like follow their conscience, right? So Catholic theologians look around at the world in the 30s and 40s, totalitarianism, large states, democracy conscripting men to, to commit unjust acts. And they basically, they start to subtly say, we got to tip moral authority away from law to conscience, right? John Ford is huge in this. Like he's a Jesuit theologian considered very conservative, but he has these very radical moments of like, no, we have to like fight for conscience rights for Catholic doctors, um, to, to make them, to exempt them from being complicit in these grander, grander sins, right? A number of other theologians come out and say that um, James Martin Gillis, who's a pretty conservative guy for the, in, the, in the 30s and 40s, starts pushing back against the Supreme Court's arguments about conscious objection in his periodicals, saying like the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court had a couple decisions that are, have a lot of technical detail, but basically they, you know, they basically are in favor of the state having power to conscript men. And he's basically saying this, this obliterates the tradition of following conscience, which is Catholic and American. These things start to appear subtly in periodicals, newspapers, theological journals, and all of a sudden there's like this critical base. And even the theologians who want to think that this is not an option, they want Catholics to be good Americans, just obey the state, have to concede that there's like a critical growing body of scholarship that's going to allow people to use conscience language uh, against the state, right? Because the state's doing these things. And so in the 30s and 40s, a type of intellectual groundwork is laid that's going to become extremely important in the debates over Vietnam. Thank you. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, this, this uh, debate gets picked up um, and, and applied to multiple issues in, in, in the 60s. Uh, can yeah. you talk to us about um, how it actually gets picked up, especially in, in relation to the Vietnam War? Yep. And in general, like... Yeah, in, in response to the Vietnam War, it's it's lingering there. It's something that people are thinking about in the 40s and 50s. It's part of a tradition, something you learn in Catholic grade schools to follow your conscience. Even if we kind of forget that lesson, it was there. Like even in your most like, if you go back to your textbooks, if you're like a junior year of high school, you would find your like your your teacher having to tell you about this. Um, it appeared in like seminary uh, seminary texts, but also appeared in like college textbooks for moral theology, right? So it's something that Americans, American Catholics are learning. They know about in the 40s and 50s. It's kind of planted there. Um, but during the Vietnam War, right, it's basically there's this, there's a draft, obviously, taking men into the military. Um, this organization called the Catholic Peace Fellowship um, crops up. It's led by James Forrest and Thomas Cornell. Cornell sorry. Um, and they basically take this argument about conscience and Aquinas' argument about conscience and start to, like, 
basically disseminating it and teaching as many men as they can about it. And they, they, they coach guys to write about this in their paperwork for the draft, right? So it's getting applied to the basic draft form. It's called Form 150, where you have to explain why you're objecting. Form 150 is like, you have to write two essays that explain why you can object to war, right? And so there's dozens of these in the archives at Notre Dame here, um, which were like some of my, I wrote chapter three is based upon these sources. And I love working with these, but it's like 19, 20, 21 year old, 22, 22 year old guys basically applying these arguments about conscience to the draft in this draft paperwork, right? So that's one place that it goes. And you find them saying stuff like, I can't go into combat and obey the unjust, unjust um, order of, of, of a military commander, because that's going to force me to sublimate my conscience into that order. It's going to force me to like hand my conscience over to a leader, which is exactly what the Catholic faith tells me I cannot do. Right. Um, there are a lot of other arguments in there. Like God puts direct commands in my conscience that I cannot break. I'm alone with God in conscience. And the second Vatican council also kind of spreads this language around, which is a key, which is also a key moment. Right. Um, but it also begins to appear in periodicals, Supreme court cases, um, it begins to appear in theological debates. It begins to appear in pamphlets, right? So it starts spreading all over the place and is applied. And like men can pick up on this language and use it. And public intellectuals like John Shireen and Gordon Zahn, especially Gordon Zahn is this lay Catholic sociologist. He worked at the University of uh, Chicago Loyola for a while before he moved to the University of Massachusetts, Boston. But he was like the main individual who took a public stand and a public argument as a public intellectual for the rights of conscience. He tried to push Vatican II thinkers to be more aggressive about it. He tried to push push Archbishop Cushing to be more aggressive about it. Um, and the last thing I'll say is like John Noonan, you know, famous jurist, Catholic conservative jurist of the 20th century. One of the like key memos that he writes in the late 1960s about the draft is like this massive peon to conscience. It's like praised, but like a, this document about how like, you know, Franz Jagerstadter, who, who died for conscience rights against Nazi Germany, Thomas More, other thinkers like back to the apostles have like vindicated this doctrine of always following a conscience. And like, that's exactly what he says. The Catholic church teaches people is to follow conscience against unjust laws, which they all perceive the draft for an unjust war. Um, the draft is unjust individual against individuals for an unjust war. So like this conscience argument starts circulating and being applied in multiple places, right? Various groups pop up, but like the thirties and forties were the initial sort of beachhead. But then the sixties is like this massive dispersion of this language. And I, I think like there you can kind of see like, I say this in the introduction. This is the last thing I'll say um, to this question. I can just keep going, as you can tell, but I, I have, we'll keep Feel moving. Keep going. But it's like, I think this is like the 20th century in a miniature, right? It's a violent century, um, especially that moment between 1930 and 1970. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a century challenged by technology uh, that challenges various things. But you go from a debate about, you know, saturation bombing in World War II to a debate about an unjust war in Vietnam. You go from debates about condoms and other things during World War II to a massive debate about contraception, then to a massive debate about abortion. It's this rise of biopolitics in the 20th century, this maelstrom of violence and questions of life. And I think that that's the that's the critical context for the rise of conscience claims as to try to keep individuals like um, up, uh, give individuals a way to opt out of this, right? Opt out of the laws that people are are handing down to make people do things that violates their basic moral sense of the world, right? Is why this like movement um, becomes important. But I think like that's the context. It's this context of violence and state power uh, on one hand, and we'll get into this question too. It's a, it's a pushback against the church's command over bodies on the other hand. Great, thank you. So I really like the that you. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is how you apply. Um, or you think about how uh, consciousness rights and, and, and the ideas behind them gets applied to certain uh, particular issues, right? You provide these case studies. One of them is, is, is the Vietnam War, as you 
just described and explained. Um, but another one is um, sexual morality, and particularly contraception. And I, I want to throw you a, a two-part question here. Uh, first, how did the issue of contraception um, and sexual morality come to be, if not a dominant, then a um, then a then a popular uh, topic of conversation among Catholics in the 1960s? Um, and then the second part of the question is, how did the language of conscience rights play into this conversation? Yeah, it's a great two-part question. Yeah, I mean, I think by the mid-60s, 64, 65, right, Catholics are um, expecting more liberalization on the church's rules, especially on, on contraception. Um, Catholics are like in, in, you know, entwined with the sexual revolution. They're looking around at it questioning where the boundaries are, what's going to be set as a boundary, what's going to be free to do. Um, contraception becomes this hot button issue too, right? The pill uh, is proved by the FDA in 1961. Catholic women are taking it by 63, 64. Uh, there's a, a committee convened around Vatican II and, and in Rome to discuss this as a famous birth control committee that eventually votes to authorize it. But then uh, conservatives get a hold of the Pope and convince him to, to step back against it. But it's this issue of contraception is like the boundary issue for sexual morality, for the sexual revolution for Catholics, right? In, in 68, obviously, Humana Vitae comes out. Um, the end of July 68, uh, Pope Paul the uh, Sixth is basically saying it still violates the natural law. It's still illicit or immoral to use artificial contraception to prevent pregnancies. And Catholics thought that this was not going to happen, right? There was optimism that it was not going to happen. And conservatives kind of got a hold of this and turned this issue back. And that makes contraception like the big issue of the 60s then it will it'll stride into abortion for the next phase um, but i think by the late 60s early 70s 80s 90s and this is a question we can come back to like i see the history of catholic studies becoming i see catholic studies increasingly becoming entwined with the history of sexuality um and i think this is like the key question obviously with the with the clergy abuse crisis with debates over abortion um debates over gay rights as well uh, that kind of the late 60s is like this initial phase of inaugurating a, a phase of church history dominated by debates about sexuality in the body. Um, conscience rights enters this in, an, in a way that I found really interesting for the research. It, it enters it through liberal priests defending the right to follow conscience against a bishop. And so that's the, ch the story I tell in chapter four. It's about these this group of Washington, D.C. priests who are basically saying, we have always had this tradition of forming and following your conscience. It's your proximate authority. They say that like lay people who want to use contraception can uh, use the conscience argument to authorize their use of birth control. And the Archbishop, um, Patrick Aloysius O'Boyle, great Catholic middle name, Aloysius, uh, says, no, the law says, the law is very clear, and the Pope has backed this up, that you have to, uh, that is that is illicit or immoral to use birth control. And so you have the two sides, the law versus conscience taking place, right? And so th this chapter traces that debate, right? And one thing I explore in this is also how the priesthood is discussed as like, you know, this, uh, they're, they're discussed as men of power on a top of a hierarchy, a pyramid, but actually priests are actually the front lines of emancipating individuals to follow their consciences, right? And that's one of the ironies of the story. It was that case in World War II, but it's also that case in the birth control debate. It's priests defending the lady's right to follow conscience on the matter of contraception. And so to kind of double back to answer your question, how does conscience become so important in this? Catholics see the world through this framework of law and conscience, right? So when the birth control debate happens, it occurs on these terms, right? It's law against conscience. It's birth control against the law, uh, birth control against like humanae vitae. And it's grafted into these larger debate that has medieval roots, right? 
Um, and both sides are basically saying, yeah, we have this argument about law or we have this argument about conscience, but ultimately what the church teaches, what Aquinas said, what I learned in seminary, these priests were saying is that you can follow your conscience on serious moral matters where you discern. And they were saying that argument still applies to birth control, but the conservative hierarchy says, no, it doesn't. And both sides are actually in a bit of trouble. And, and this is kind of what I say at the end. It's like, I'm not into like Whiggish history. I don't think, I don't think people are getting smarter here, right? I think they're just debating and like bouncing off each other. There was no solving this, right? There's no solving this dilemma. And I think Aquinas put a bomb in Catholic thought that goes off in the 20th century, but it's a conceptual debate that cannot be solved because subjective rights have legitimacy next to the law. And both are bouncing off each other and speaking past one another, trying to solve this problem. Um, but in a sense, Catholics get, get, get stuck in this debate, you know, where like it's law or it's conscience, but both sides have legitimacy. And just to kind of, the last thing I'll say is, you know, the archbishop suspends these guys, these priests for making this argument. They have a massive 60s rally um, where like Eugene McCarthy shows up to give a speech. Nuns and priests are like swaying, singing Mrs. Robinson. They do a big like march in a hotel. They do a pray in. Uh, they distribute all these flyers. All these things are like full of following conscience. And it's like this very, it's 60 styles movement styled on the civil rights movement against the archbishop. And that's kind of why it's a 60s thing, right? Um, but the archbishop suspends them. Uh, a bunch of them eventually come back, but a bunch of their careers are ruined, right? And uh, at the end of the day, it's just kind of the priesthood itself as it enters a crisis in the late 60s and early 70s of like loss, the, no, loss of prestige, loss of numbers. And so this is an episode in like, I think a fight between the, between the priesthood and like the larger authority that, that is part of that larger history of decline. But it's also um, this moment of like tension and vibrant social movements. And so Catholics are basically like they're fighting for conscience rights the way other groups are fighting for other rights. And that's why this is part of like a larger 60s thing. And I, I think it should be the priests should be seen as genuine 60s warriors, right? They should be seen as like, you know, on par with like the, the feminists who raided uh, the Miss America pageant or like the students who occupied their their halls at Columbia or the you know, the folks who took to the streets in Paris, right? These priests are also like on the the barricade. They're 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 leading the lady, but they're on the barricades. They're a vanguard for the '60s. We don't think of priests as being capable of this, but I think like once you take Catholic, once Catholic thought becomes, um, you loosen it up a bit and look at it in this American context. It's a resource for trying to understand these bigger critical questions about modernity. So, yeah, that was a long-winded answer to your great question. <laughs> no, <laughs> Thank that you. was great. Um, and now I want to shift gears a little bit away from particular political issues, right, these case studies, and, and actually turn to, uh, surprisingly, Catholic engagement with uh, psychology. Um, so you mentioned that in the book, you mentioned that for most of the 20th century, Catholics had raised a wall between themselves and, and the burgeoning field of psychology. Um, but then in the 1960s and 70s, uh, Catholic intellectuals, in, in, including priests, began to soften their, their stance and engage with, with developments in, in psychology. Um, so there are multiple parts to their question. Yeah. First, why were Catholics initially so uh, reticent to engage with psychology? Um, and what led then to the softening of, of this stance in the 60s and 70s? Um, and then finally, um, what impact did this have on, on the discourse surrounding uh conscience rights among Catholics? How did psychology um, yeah. influence that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think history of Catholics and psychology is something that various people are working on, and there's been some good books on, but it's still a big question, I think, for the field going forward. Um, still, still, so I think a lot of books to be written out there on this topic, especially with the abuse crisis and psychology becoming so important to try to understand that. Um, 
Catholics, I think Catholics resisted it for a number of reasons, right? They like, it's a threat to moral theology. It's a threat to um, a clean and neat moral universe. That's the, that's the basic principle. The second thing is that it's a Jewish intellectual endeavor and Catholics don't like that. They don't respect that intellectual base until, until the sixties and seventies They're you know, they're, they will question, they question Freud, right? They don't think Freud and they don't like his arguments, but they don't like it, the Jewish roots of the discipline either. So it's a bit of anti-Semitism, I think, and part of it. Um, and it was always kind of perceived as a threat to like psych- scholastic philosophy. And I think that's mainly it. And there was a few endeavors to fund it. But even when it was funded in the 20s and 30s, it was kind of couched in like a natural law type paradigm. Uh, but it's very much perceived as a secular Jewish discipline. And I think that's one of the reasons why they tried to resist it. But it would also call into question the confessional, right? If you don't, do you need a psychologist when you have a priest in a confessional? Like they would just say that's like free psychology, right? That's the way it was thought of to do confessions until the 60s. Um, and the confession is, is key to like conscience formation as well. And Catholics begin to soften their stance. Vatican II tells them to, so- to like engage with the social sciences. I think that's one really important point. Um, Catholic theologians begin reading this stuff. They begin taking it seriously. They begin reading uh, developmental psychology. They read folks like Eric Fromm. They read... Um, like Kohlberg, as I'll talk about in a minute, but they read a lot of other like mid 60s, 70s psychologists who influenced them that this could actually be useful to understanding pastoral life and spiritual life. And I think too, there's a bit of rebellion against one's intellectual forefathers, right? If their base was like scholastic philosophy, folks in the 60s and 70s were saying to themselves, we're going to do social sciences. There was a lot of sociology going on too. I think that really changed theology in the 20th century. Um, and it was probably in direct response to some of the carnage of the 40s and 50s, looking for new fountains of, of knowledge. And conscience is like a natural topic to think about with psychology because it's so in, in, internal and mental. But again, the scholastic theology is still there, but they're also using psychology and blending these two things together. That's, and so I found them kind of keeping their old traditional categories, even while they brought in this new discipline, right? And so you talk about the formation of conscience that had always been around, but now they kind of link that to like psychological development of the conscience. They start to use psychological theories to like see how conscience develops over time, right? You're like an adolescent, you're an adult, like, and your conscience gets formed is like you organically grow through life and like you develop through these intellectual stages. Um, they develop that type. They begin to think of like, they use existentialism and personalism also to like, to, to define it as like the core of the self, the central part of the nerve, nerve center of the person. It had always been there, but now they're using the psychological language to understand it. And that kind of, that does, that both changes, but also retains this tradition. And so when I was like researching the dissertation, something that like held over across time was that I always saw three compartments filtering, like war, sex, and then psychology. The psychological language was a, the third category to deal with. Um, and I think that's, it's really important the way that psychology gets used to challenge, and this is the last thing I'll, I'll kind of say in this section, the psychology argument is used to challenge the, the traditional aspect in a new way, but it's also cutting a new edge in the sense that like they basically, some of these Catholic theologians who were developing psychology became critical of the church itself, like it was during the birth control debate, but they thought the church was just raising obedient subjects to obey the law, right? And so well, they all, they all, they began using like psychology to understand conscious development and conscious formation and like the sense of self and a conscience to push back against that type of morality, like like what they called computerized morality or legalized morality, or, like feed it into a system and obey type thing is like a critique that they kind of got into and used to like turn towards psychology. But I think like you can just see the language dispersing across the sources, right? But they retain it's, it's language of growth, it's language of development, it's language of the person, language of the individual, the core of the self, the nerve system. Um, 
uh, an unfurling, a process of growth and change over time. But at the same time, they're basically they're still saying what Aquinas was saying that the conscience is the core of the self that you have to follow. But there's this whole new language surrounding it, and so I thought that was an effort to be both modern and like push forward modernity's like psychological discipline, right? And they begin reading Jewish sources. I think that's really key. They read Fromm, they read Kohlberg, they read Freud. And so they're using this Jewish base that they're now blending with this medieval scholastic theology. So they're retaining tradition, augmenting it, but applying it in new ways. Um, and I loved writing that chapter and I found it so fascinating. And I think it it connects to the political agenda in specific ways, but it's also a pastoral agenda. And it just testifies to, I think, to me, just like how how much they had invested in this language of conscience. Like it was everywhere. It was all over the place. And it could be it could be blended with so many different things, so many different types of projects for them. Great. And one of the things that I that I really um, enjoyed about your book and, and I think is a particular strength of the book is that as much as, you know, your book is about Catholics and their theologically inflected discourse about conscience rights, you also make the case that um, this seeps into um, broader American discourses, right? Um, you say that the Catholic Church was was just a, a launching pad for a uh, a post nineteen sixties iteration of conscience rights um, that became common in, in, in the late twentieth century in, in, in American public life. Um, can you give us an example of how this uh, Catholic discourse then seeps beyond the Catholic Church? Yeah. I mean, the main way it gets in is through conscience clauses, right, which are built into post-Roe v. Wade. So it's basically the abortion issue, the conscience, becomes a very common language. Um, historian Ronit Stahl is working on this now. She's at Berkeley. And it becomes a very common medical uh, response to like, um, the growth of abortion, basically for Protestants in the political system and other places. Catholics supplied this medieval argument about autonomy that became a public American discourse in the late 1970s, early 80s. And that's just that the conscience clause basically exempts a doctor or a nurse from having to participate in abortion, right? Um, conscience language becomes really important in legislation in the 70s and 80s. It becomes important in debates between like the Department of Labor um, with issues of like insurance, like how do you insure, how do you provide health insurance that doesn't pay for abortion if it's part of Medicare? Conscience rights get cited in this discourse by all sorts of legislators. Catholics are like in public hill, on, on Capitol Hill debating this issue, right? They're sending priests to like fight for conscience rights in the matter of abortion. Um, so it becomes a public language in that regard. And now we, we kind of think of it and apply it to things like uh, against florists, like Florists want to apply it when they don't want to like provide flowers for a gay marriage or a baker uses it when they don't want to provide um, like services for a gay marriage. Right. So it kind of turns and becomes this very public language for all sorts of people to use against things to the state or other people that they for things they don't want to do. Right. And it's that's spread about the debate about abortion and gay marriage and other things that, that really encapsulates it becomes a public discourse, I think. And what I want to say is like that has a Catholic root that has a Catholic genealogy that we're not that like American history has to reckon with. Right. And has to kind of see the fact that like freedom and autonomy and individuality have these older histories as baggages maybe, but also like these Catholic roots, right, in the public sphere, I think is really important to capture. Um, Amnesty International is obviously also inflected with a Catholic language. They fight for prisoners of conscience. Uh, there were connections there I explore in the final chapter. And liberal Protestants too actually begin to see Catholic theology as a resource um, and begin to, to draw upon it to make arguments for conscience rights for their for in, within their realms as well, and that was particularly applied to the draft, but also to the to the abortion argument as well. So, 
they Catholics make these friends and these enemies as they go through this, right? They like work with they work with Jewish intellectual sources. Liberal Protestants are like drawing upon their discourse, but they're useful because they're giving Catholics are are useful because they're supplying this like discourse of conscience to all sorts of people in the late 1970s. And I think we're just going to continue to debate this term, right? I think Americans are going to continue to debate like the limits uh, of conscience following within the public sphere. Um, uh, and especially as, as it is applied to medical issues. And, and that's a Catholic dilemma. I think without recognizing with, reckoning with the Catholic contribution of the 60s and 70s, you can't understand like where this came from um, or why it's so heated, right? So, um, and the last thing I'll say is like, it was Republican governors, but then Trump as well. And, and they were using like the health and human services sector of the, of the federal government to try to pass conscience clauses, right? So the conscience clause is a major agenda of the conservative right. And that conscience clause agenda of the, of the now conservative right was originally um, a push by the Catholic left during the war, right? So the, what an argument that begins like anti-war on the left against conscription has been applied and transmogrified and transmutated into a conservative argument against abortion services, right? But it was pioneered by this Catholic left. So that's also, I think, something to reckon with, right? The right is drawing upon a, a left-wing social movement of the 60s um, movement um, to like to shape this contemporary conscience clause. And what I want to say is the conscience clause has medieval and Catholic roots that we have to reckon with. And so does like a, our concept of autonomy. Um, yeah. And so I, I just see this keep going. And the, la- the, fi- the final thing I'll say, I already said that, but this is going to be the last thing, right? Is like um, within the church itself, it's still going to be a global debate, right? Um, Francis pushed for conscience rights in Amor- in Amoris Laetitia in, in paragraph 303, he mentions it. And the conservative Catholics pushed back against it. And before that, like it was a heated topic among like Benedict, this, uh, like Joseph Rotzinger before he became Benedict and also John Paul II. We're, we're trying to clamp down on conscience, right? So like it's going to be a debate in Rome. Whoever becomes Pope, like liberal popes will push the conscience agenda more on issues like contraception and other things and like individual freedom and autonomy. And the conservative popes will push back against it. But there, but there's this movement that the conservative like Catholic right who occupies the Vatican is trying to push back against, right? So Basically, we're going to continue to debate this term, and that's why I say um, there's no solving this debate, right? It's just going to continue to like it's just going to continue to go, and we're going to continue to push back against each other. So, and I think this is where you make a really important intervention, right? Because when we think about um, how religion intersects with U.S. law, right, and then how U.S. law tends to um, understand religion, right, um, the most common go-to is to say, oh, you know, um, U.S. law has a a Protestant Christian understanding of of religion, and there's merit to that. But I think you complicate that here quite well and and show that um, Catholic theological ideas also um, shape that um, in important ways, right? And I think that is one of uh, the important contributions of, of your book. Um, and yeah, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is your first book, and, and it was recently published. So I, I'm assuming that you're taking uh, some time to celebrate and, and regroup. I uh, don't want to put too much pressure on you, but but I am curious. Um, are there any mm-hmm. projects that you're working on now? Um, yeah. That any Thanks. lingering questions that, that remain, or maybe you want to take it in a different uh, direction? Yeah. I mean, there's two things to kind of say. The first is that um, I still work with the Kushwa Center here. And we're working on a project called Gender, Sex, and Power. Um, it's a history of clergy abuse in the 20th century U.S. And I'm, I'm writing an essay for that right now that's been occupying like the last um, year or so of my scholarly life is um, a, a particular essay, a biographical dive into a priest from Louisville uh, named Lewis Miller, 
um, who is a prolific serial abuser. Um, and I try to study the system that's around him and him too. Um, so that's an essay that I'm working on. I think the history of clergy abuse is like, obviously there are a lot, there are a lot of scholars now working on this, but I think that's a key, obviously it's something key going forward for the field of Catholic studies, something you have, we have to write about and engage. Um, if we want to understand what it means to be Catholic in the modern world, if, and if we want to understand the history of sexuality. So I've been working with bishopsaccountability.org on that. Like that, they gave me an archive of like 700, it's like a thousand documents or so that I've read and I've tried to understand Miller as much as possible. It's, it's proving really difficult, <laughs> um, but also fun. And so I'm, I'm drafting, I'm drafting that, but in, and I think there's, um, there's, so that's kind of, I'm working on that right now. I don't know if that's going to be a book project, but that's just an essay. And I'm also, I think I'm still interested. I'm, I'm not sure how specifically this is going to work out, but I'm interested to do something really big with the history of ideas in American life uh, involving Catholics. And I think like the notion of authority. Um, I think I want to flip from the subjective side of conscience to like a more objective um, idea, more objective or more like author authoritative idea um, about power. And I'm kind of working about how a big history like that would work out um, across time, but the history of the idea of authority in American life and I'm from the Enlightenment to the culture wars. So the last thing I'll say is I'm teaching a class in the culture wars now. It's a new class for this semester. And that's been giving me a lot of questions uh, where I'm using that class as like a base to ask some new questions to write a, write a new book. And that's like a history of the seventies, eighties and nineties. And I'm really enjoying that class. It's, it's, it's challenging and um, confounding and, and difficult, uh, but I'm in this, I'm in this space that we sometimes enter into where like you're trying to launch a second project and I'm not, I'm not sure how that's going to work out yet. I'm giving myself some time to try to think about that and these bigger questions. But um, if you, your first, the first book is kind of this case study maybe, or it's a dissertation based study uh, like that comes out of like the sixties. What I'm trying, what I'm going to do for this next project is think really big, think really big across time. That's, that's the one goal I have at the moment. So thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for talking to us for uh, new books in Catholic studies. As we mentioned earlier, this is a um, collaboration between the new books network and the American Catholic historical association. Um, and, and yeah, thank you for talking us, talking to us. Thank you so much. Your, your book, Follow Your Conscience, The Catholic Church and the Spirit of, of the 60s. We look forward to uh, seeing uh, how your future work develops. Thank you so much. It's so much fun. I really appreciated this.